Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablana Chakraborty. And we're about to deliver on a, a threat of sorts that I think you made, Sarah, on an earlier episode. Or a promise, or depending a promise. on how you look at it. <laughs> depending on how, we'll look at it as a promise. And it was to do a bourbon series. And of course, we're not referring to the beverage there when we say bourbon, we're referring <laughs> that would be to. <laughs> exciting series indeed. Yes, yeah, so maybe not as lengthy. <laughs> but we're referring, in fact, to France's House of Bourbon, a family that ruled the country from 1589 until 1792 and the French Revolution began. And they became one of the most powerful ruling families in Europe, and their influence eventually extended into places like Spain and Italy. The first bourbon king, however, was Henry IV, and it's kind of a good time to talk about him. And the the reason behind that is right up our alley. In December, researchers formally identified Henry IV's head, and... You might kind of wonder how this all came about, but the head has apparently been held in private collections since it disappeared in 1793, which is, of course, when during the French Revolution, revolutionaries dug up bodies and guillotined them, you know, just to add to the gore. Um, that happened 200 years after the king was even assassinated. So a delayed beheading, indeed. Exactly. And as Sarah just mentioned, it's been kind of, bobbing around in several private collections, which we were talking about earlier. I don't like to think of it bobbing. No. <laughs> don't like to think of it bobbing and also wondering who owns these private collections of heads of monarchs. We would like to know That's if anyone the, has any insight. The mystery of this podcast. Yes, one of the many mysteries. So they have this head. They've been testing it for about nine months or so. And from examining it and using some various scientific strategies like radiocarbon dating, which helped them to figure out the likely date of death and digital facial reconstruction to figure out what the mummified head actually looked like when it was alive. All the signs have kind of pointed toward Henry IV. Yeah, so that brings us to the question, how did this ruler, who is considered one of France's best-loved monarchs, he was even called Henry the Great, how did he come to lose his head in the first place? Yeah, why was he assassinated? Exactly. Well, as usual, we're going to begin at the beginning and tell you a little bit about where Henry IV came from. Henry IV was born Henry de Bourbon-Navarre in 1553, and he's often just called Henry of Bourbon or Henry of Navarre. And his parents were Antoine de Bourbon, who was the Duke of Vendôme, and Jeanne d'Albret, who was the Queen of Navarre from 1555. And Navarre is kind of in an interesting position here. It's an independent kingdom located around the Pyrenees, uh, which is the border between France and Spain. And Henry was heir to that throne, heir to Navarre through his mother. But he also had a claim, sort of a distant claim, but a claim nevertheless, to a much more powerful throne. Right. On his father's side, he was at that time in the only direct line of descent from Francis Capetian kings. And in case you're not kind of up to speed on your French monarchy knowledge, here's the deal with the whole Capetian kings and lineage thing. The House of Capet was the source of France's so-called third race of kings, and the House of Bourbon was a branch of that, basically. When the direct Capet line died out, though, the House of Valois, another branch of the family, prevented the Bourbons from actually taking over the throne because the Valois were the only ones who could provide a male heir at that time. 
even though the connections of said male heir were pretty distant yeah, comparatively. Yeah, even though the Bourbons were more closely related to this direct line. Exactly. They only had girl heirs to offer, but there's a rule that the Valois continue to invoke, and they kind of continue to do that throughout, um, and it's called the Salic Law of Secession, which basically means that the throne has to pass down through male heirs only. And they kept this up because it legitimized their entire rule and they had a rule for it it went on for quite some time exactly it eventually comes back to bite them but it it, it works in their favor at this time so as a result of this salic law of succession it seemed pretty unlikely that henry would ever become king of france uh, because catherine de medici and the reigning king had three sons before he was even born and they continued to have sons but there's actually a bigger issue than all of these young boys being ahead in line to the throne henry is a protestant Yes. Um, around his childhood was pretty much the beginning of a long period of civil war between the Roman Catholics, which included the royal family, and the Protestants, or Huguenot forces. And Henry's dad started off fighting on the Protestant side, but then he switched and was killed by the Protestants in battle. His mom, though, stayed a diehard Protestant, and this made a huge impression on him in his formative years. And it's also the reason why people kind of question the sincerity of some of his later decisions. So his mother also had a pretty big influence on his education and his training, too. She made sure that he got a strong military education, and then she furthered that by having him groomed under leaders of the Protestant forces like Gaspard de Coligny. And it all paid off because Henry ultimately did distinguish himself in battle. He proved to be a, a very capable soldier. Yes, so he participated in that civil war between the Protestants and the Catholics. And then a period of peace occurred ever so briefly in 1570. And a lot of people hoped that the civil war was over. And to strengthen that ideal, Catherine de' Medici arranged a marriage between Henry and her daughter, Margot of Valois. Yeah, and that's something that Katie and I talked about in one of the Catherine de' Medici episodes. It was called the Scarlet Nuptials because unfortunately this marriage that was to unite uh, the two competing houses, the two competing religions, sort of finally bring peace to France ends in this terrible massacre in which all these Protestants are murdered. It's um, It puts a damper on the festivities. Definitely. It was called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And after that, King Charles IX forced Henry to convert to Catholicism and basically detained him at court for a few years since he knew that Henry of Navarre wasn't serious about this conversion. Well, and that he might be a champion of the Protestant cause if he's out and about. Right. As soon as Henry escapes, though, in 1576, he recants and he joins up with the combined forces of Protestants and Catholic rebels against Henry III, who had come into power at that time. They didn't fare so well, though. They actually had to surrender in 1577. But a few years later, something else happens. Henry III's brother, Francois, actually dies in 1584, which makes Henry of Navarre next in line for the throne. Yeah, so that's the last Valois heir is dead. And with Henry III not having any sons of his own, it seems like Henry of Navarre could become king. And that does not make some people happy at all. Not at all. The possibility of a Protestant king 
usually a French monarch bears the title of the most Christian king. So, so it was an impossibility, essentially, for many people. Right. They were outraged. The Pope actually excommunicated Henry and declared that he had no right to inherit the crown. And a group called the Holy League, sometimes referred to as the Catholic League, which was headed up by Henry, Duke of Guise, was set up specifically to keep him from ascending to the throne. But this is where things start to get a little rocky, because in an effort to carry out their goals, the League starts to rely on Spain, which is, of course, the historic enemy of France. And that poses a major threat to French independence. But in the beginning, Henry III, who is uh, the sunless king, is too weak to oppose the League. He's not in a position um, to, to do anything about it. Right. So this leads what's known as the War of the Three Henrys, which I think is the best name for a war ever. And it occurs mainly in southwestern France. So they're out of Paris now. The League basically starts to get more and more control over Paris. Um, Henry of Navarre, though, really gets to shine here. He shows his ability to lead, and he manages to to defeat, eventually, the king's army at Coutras. Around the same time, though, the League accepts the daughter of Philip II of Spain and Elizabeth of Valois as the next heir to the French throne. So this is kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's definitely a big deal. It's essentially putting France's future in Spain's hands. And Henry III is not okay with that. Um, it it just seems against what he believes in, and he would rather support his family ultimately than support this plot. And support France. Yeah, exactly. And so he has the Duke of Guise assassinated in December 1588. And at that point, Henry III, the king, joins forces with his old enemy, Henry of Navarre, to take back Paris from the League. They try to, but unfortunately, Henry III, the last of the Valois line, is assassinated on August 1st, 1589. And this is before they actually have a chance to to take back Paris fully from the League. He has no son, as we mentioned. So before he dies, he names Henry of Navarre as his successor, definitively. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's clear sailing for Henry of Navarre because a lot of people still opposed him. So he literally had to fight his way to the throne and it took years and years to do so. Uh, he was winning victories in the provinces and the outlying territories and some of the other cities, but he couldn't get Paris out of the League's hands with their Spanish alliances. Um, and that was what he was struggling to do. Right. And the League threatened to set aside Salic law again, this law that had governed the monarchy for so long, and have a Spanish infanta declared queen. So Henry decided to convert to Catholicism again for the second time on July 25th, 1593. He just wanted the fighting to be over, basically. He didn't want the Spanish threat to French independence to come in, and he also just was ready to be have this over with. Yeah, and... Around that time, eventually, the Catholics started to accept him. And on March 22nd, 1594, he was finally allowed into Paris again. Um, and of course, one of the things Henry is most famous for is the alleged comment, Paris is well worth a mass, uh, which obviously most people take that as an indication he may have been less than sincere about his conversion. Right. But sincerity aside, there are a lot of reasons why Henry was considered an effective ruler and why he's remembered as one of the most popular kings of France. He ended nearly 40 years of religious strife in April of 1598 when he signed the Edict of Nantes. 
And this confirmed Roman Catholicism as the state church, but it also granted a lot of rights to Protestants as well. Yeah, and I mean, he wasn't just, I I guess, part of the beauty of his reign is that when you got a certain measure of religious peace, you could focus on other things as well. And he worked to eliminate the national debt and create a reserve and develop agriculture, introduce the silk industry to France, uh, and encourage the manufacture of products in France, like tapestries and items that were usually imported from other countries. He also beautified Paris. For example, he built the Great Gallery of the Louvre, which at that time was still a royal residence, so he lived there. And he also seemed to be generally a likable guy. He was smart, funny, brave, pleasure-loving, maybe related to that. He was also very big with the ladies. Uh, His physical allure earned him the nickname the Green Gallant, which you probably that's one of the main things you hear him referred to as today. You may have been curious about that from our title. <laughs> True. And because of his many lovers, he was sometimes also called Le Vert Galant, which translates to the gay old spark. Yeah, I feel like a little something is lost in translation there, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, he had several very well-known affairs, uh, one with Gabrielle Destray, one with Henriette de Balzac d'Entrague, and one with Charlotte de Essart, and we were talking about Gabrielle Destre some. She's an interesting lady, maybe worthy of her own podcast at some point. Um, a, an interesting combination of bravery and beauty, I would say. Indeed. Um, but people considered Henry maybe not so wise when it came to his relationships with women. And one thing we should consider, he is still married to Margot during all this time. Yeah, Margot, who is childless, they never had a child together, she refuses to annul their marriage as long as his lover, Gabrielle Destraw, is still alive. Um, eventually she does, though, after Gabrielle dies, and she allows their marriage to be annulled so that Henry can marry Marie de Medici in 1600. But Margot's still a very interesting character in herself. Yeah, she's said to have had an affair with the Duke of Guise, an early affair. Um, she actually got in a lot of trouble with her brothers over that. Uh, she was known for licentious behavior and um, still, though, stuck by her husband and tried to stick up for him with her family, promote him with her brother, Francois. Um, you know, she was looking out for his interests because she knew her own were tied to his. Definitely. It didn't always work out in her favor, though. Her brother, Henry III, actually banished her in 1586, so she wasn't allowed to be in Paris anymore. She was eventually allowed back into Paris in 1605 and apparently lived in high style there and had many, many affairs, which she may have written about in her memoirs. I haven't read her memoirs. Have you, Sarah? No, I haven't. But I think she got to live in a pretty queenly fashion. She she struck a sort of Anne of Cleves type deal, you know, where she could live as the queen's sister with mm-hmm. all the... All the luxuries of being queen without all the responsibilities. Yeah, she got to keep her title, too, right? She did. Um, so Henry IV, though, <laughs> he's not having such a luxurious time, at least compared to his former wife, Margot. Yeah, well, he may have been having a luxurious time, but he wasn't getting it easy, that's no. for sure. <laughs> he, Before he was killed on May 14th, 1610, he lived through a couple of assassination attempts, both by Catholics. And one of them was sort of serious, though. He was visiting Gabrielle de Straw when a guy named Jean Chaste, a law student who had been taught by Jesuits, stabbed him in the lip with a knife. 
And a scar left by this attack was actually one of the things that helped researchers identify that mummified head that we referred to earlier in this conversation. Um, Which I think that's so interesting that your scars can be preserved so well. <laughs> yeah. But who knew? Who knew? <laughs> um, but the man who finally killed Henry was Francois Ravaillac, who is a 32-year-old man who uh, had come from a professional family that had fallen dramatically into a beggar status. Um, and while he's often described as a religious fanatic or a devout Catholic, maybe even sometimes described as a monk, a lot of people think that he just had severe mental issues, and that was what drove him to assassinate the king, not his religious fervor. Right. He was really religious and had, in fact, at one point joined a really strict Cistercian order of monks, but he was expelled only after about three to six weeks of being with them because he was supposedly having visions and generally having experiences such as smelling sulfur, which was traditionally associated with the devil, that they didn't approve of at all. So Mm. kind of showing signs early on of those mental issues. Something unhinged, yeah. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, he's kind of an opportunist when it comes to assassinating the king. He stabs Henry in Henry's carriage while the king was on the way to take care of some military matters. Yep, the streets were so crowded, apparently Henry IV's mounted escorts on his carriage had to ride ahead. Some of his footmen decided to walk ahead of the carriage until the congestion had sort of passed. And Ravayak took this opportunity to reach into the coach window with a long knife and stab the king twice. And supposedly, he didn't even really make a huge effort to get away after that. Yeah, he just sort of stood around. Exactly. And they apprehended him, but they didn't kill him immediately. They wanted to question him, and they did end up questioning him for several days because they wanted to find out if he was part of a larger plot. Yeah, they they couldn't believe that this one guy from this beggar-class family had hatched this whole plan himself. But up until the end, he he maintained that it was just his idea. He was ultimately pulled apart by four horses, but he insisted that he worked alone and he did it because he thought that Henry was out to get the Pope. Exactly. And some people still wonder if it was a conspiracy, but who could have planned it? One option is the Jesuits. They seem to get blamed for a lot of things in our podcast, as it turns out. Um, But they had recently been allowed back into France after being banned for a while. So they were one sort of suspected group. But other people actually think it could have been the king's wife, Marie, because she became regent after his death and cast aside a lot of his policies, particularly those involving Spain. And she even married their son, Louis XIII, to a Spanish princess. So you never know. Or just a guy who thought the Pope was in danger. So even though some people may have benefited in certain ways from Henry's death, the overall population was upset about it, and the mood was one of sadness. And he was mourned pretty intensely for a long time. For 18 days, he had a 100 low masses and six high masses said per day for his soul. And three sculptors were commissioned to make the king's bust from a death mask. Um, and this is so bizarre, but one of the resulting sculptures, which was the, considered the most lifelike, was actually served two meals daily by the king's servants as if he were still alive. Yeah, apparently this is an ancient custom that symbolized the continuity of the monarchy. So basically, 
only when the king was buried was his household dissolved. That's how they saw it. So that was the reason for it. But yeah, it is a little bit creepy. Yeah, I guess so. He wasn't buried until June 25th, so over a month after he was killed. And at that time, his son, Louis XIII, sprinkled holy water on his body, and there was a procession and a huge requiem mass. He wasn't actually buried until June 25th, so over a month after he was actually killed. And his son, Louis XIII, at that time, sprinkled holy water on his body, and there was a huge procession and a requiem mass. And then he was buried in the Basilica of Saint-Denis with uh, all the other French kings. But, of course... We know now all of these monarchs were dug up by French revolutionaries in the late 1700s, and many were mutilated and dumped into mass graves. Somehow or another, Henry's head avoided that fate, was removed from its body, and preserved, entering private collections. (laughs) It became a collectible. Yeah. It must have been embalmed pretty well, though, not just because he was buried so long after his death, but because... Even today, the head, if you look, you can see pictures of it online. It, his head still has hair, parts of internal organs, his brain, in fact, his brain contents are still there. It basically looks like a brown, leathery covering it over... Look, looks like a head. Exposed portions of skull. Yeah, a weird head. A but weird a, head. But, <laughs> but a head, in fact. They couldn't get a clean DNA sample off of this head, though. I mean, I presume if a head is exhumed and handled by tons of French revolutionaries, a mob, probably would have a lot of DNA on it. And the random collectors, of course. Exactly. But they were able to analyze the embalming substance and then compare it to historical records of how kings were embalmed during that time. And that was one of the things that helped them confirm who it was. They also have one of the molds of Henry IV's face that was made after his death, the ones that we referred to earlier. And it matches up with their facial reconstruction that they made. So two pretty strong clues in addition to ones that we mentioned before. And so now they've confirmed that it's him. And his head will be reinterred this year at Saint-Denis with full state honors. And I guess to further honor him, we'll be talking about his descendants. So, you know, thus begins the bourbon series. You should definitely send us your suggestions for favorite bourbon monarchs. Favorite Louis. Favorite Louis. Favorite, I mean, come on. There's a lot (laughs) to work with there. Um, But don't limit it to Louis. I mean, we have we have monarchs across Europe. And they might find more heads in the future. They might. They have decided that since they were able to identify Henry IV's head, they will get others now, perhaps. So, you know, maybe we'll have some other news, newsy items to go along with our bourbon series. Hopefully. So if you have any good bourbon ideas, feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we're on Facebook. So all good ways to reach us. Definitely. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about the formal royal residence of Henry IV, we have an article called How the Louvre Works. You can look it up by visiting our homepage and typing in Louvre at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 